Good evening, everybody. In accordance with what I said the, uh, the first week, we're going to start at 7 o'clock, so I want to start now. And uh, so we'll probably have a few people trickling in, but that's okay. So uh, let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Thank you, Lord, that we can be together again and that you have given us your word that is true and trustworthy. Thank you that uh, you have inspired it entirely. And uh, there are many things in it that are challenging for us to understand for all sorts of reasons. And well, we pray that you would give us clarity as we study and as we discuss your word and as we apply it to our lives. Lord, it's been said that it's not the parts of the Bible that we don't understand that are very challenging to us and that we often don't like, but it's the parts that we do understand and and yet don't want to obey you in. And so, Father, will you not only give us clarity in our minds, but will you also uh, work in us by the Holy Spirit to make us desirous to obey you and your word. So renew our hearts, we pray, through Jesus our Lord. Amen. So you guys had last week off. I know at least one of you was, was disappointed by that because uh, you told me that you didn't know what to do with your time. I won't tell you who that was. <laughs> I, think, I think Mike figured it out. Um, so, but uh, glad to be back here. We're into Micah chapter 2 tonight. So uh, if you have your Bibles, please open there. If you don't have your Bibles, this is a Bible study. You probably should bring it. Some of you may not have the Bible to turn to. In that case, you can turn your Bible on and scroll there. Uh, if you remember, big picture for uh, the book of Micah, these three big cycles of, of judgment and salvation. And uh, the last time we were together, we talked about the majority of chapter one, which we said that's the announcement of judgment, right? This was, the, this was kind of the intro where, where Micah was saying, okay, everybody, listen up. God is coming in judgment. He's coming on, in judgment on Samaria, the capital in the north. He's coming in judgment on Jerusalem, the capital in the south, and says really the reason is because of their idolatry. They've not been faithful to the covenant that they had with God. Instead, they've been worshiping other gods to the extent that Micah calls Jerusalem the high place of Judah, right? We said the high place is the center of pagan worship, idolatrous worship and that Jerusalem is actually the center of that in the south and it should have been totally the opposite. Jerusalem should have been the place from which the worship of the God of Israel went out to the rest of the world, but it, it wasn't. It was actually the, the center of, of this idolatry. So we talked about that and about the, the judgment that was coming. It came on the north in 722, the Assyrians conquered, and then it came uh, on the south about 150 years later with, with Babylon. Most of the rest of the book really deals specifically with, with the South and this, and this uh, Micah's continued ministry to, to the Southern Kingdom of Judah, rebuking their sins. And so what you have in, in chapter 2, the majority of chapter 2, is what you might call the case against Judah. Right? So we've, we've talked about this idea that the prophets were like lawyers, they're prosecutors, they're prosecuting uh, for God, and they're, they're bringing the case against God's unfaithful people, those who have broken the covenant. And so verses 1 to 11 in chapter 2 are going to be the case against Judah. Um, you know, idolatry was, was mentioned in, in chapter 1, but it wasn't really spelled out. Maybe a little bit, 
for the North. We talked about their images, their idols, the, the, the earnings of a prostitute. We talked about some of that. But the only thing that we read really about Judah is that the wound of the North, right, her wound, Samaria's wound, has come to Judah. The punishment that came to Samaria in the north was also coming to the south, by which we infer means the same sin is there. We don't get a whole lot of background into what exactly is going on in Judah. And we're going to see that in this section, and then at the very end, we get just a little glimmer of hope in this, these two verses about salvation that's coming after this judgment. Right? So we're going to find in these in these verses, in this case against Judah, I have it uh, split up into kind of two big sections. Verses, um, just PSA, uh, VV. If you ever see two Vs with a period after it, that's verses. Right? If it's one V, it's verse. So two Vs is verses. Uh, verses one to five is sort of like the indictment. All right, here's Judah. Or here's a Micah bringing the, the, the indictment of God on Judah, saying, here's what's going on, and here's, here's the judgment that's being brought against you. And then verses uh, 6 to 11 uh, are, are sort of um, Judah's uh, response or uh, Judah's defense. And I would put defense in air quotes because they really have no defense against what God is bringing against them, but they're going to try their best to get out of it, and then Mike is going to rebuke them. So we'll see uh, how that goes, and then we'll get to the salvation part uh, at the end. Micah uh, 2, starting in, in verse 1. We'll, we'll handle the first two verses first. These first two verses, verses 1 and 2, kind of outline Judah's crimes or Judah's sins. So Micah says, Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it's in the power of their hands. So we stop there. Um, three things to note in, in this verse. Um, first, we see uh, what these people are doing. So first of all, the people who are being addressed, uh, it's... It's these people, those who scheme iniquity, those who work out evil on their bed. So it's a specific group of people. And as we go, we'll kind of see who these people are. And, and at various points in Micah, Micah is, is rebuking certain segments of the society. Right? Now, this, the sin problem in Judah is not limited to a certain group of people, but it's almost like he's picking out these groups of people, showing this is representative of what's going on in society right now. And so he's talking about those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. What are they doing? They're scheming iniquity. Uh, scheme is a good word. Um, it, it, for, for us, it probably uh, has a negative connotation. If somebody's a schemer, it's usually not a compliment. Uh, it's intricate planning, almost ingenuity. These people are, are sitting up at night dreaming up new ways they can break God's law. Right? They're scheming iniquity. They're working out on their beds. They're thinking about, well, you know, they're not counting sheep. They're thinking of ways that they can oppress other people. And it's interesting that he, that he specifies that it's, 
on their beds and then contrast that with when morning comes. So when are they doing this? Well, they're doing it at night. This is sort of backwards, right? The, the time when you're supposed to, understand me when I say this, the time when you're supposed to do bad things is never. I'm just kidding. I'm not kidding. That's true. But the time when, you're, when you normally would expect somebody to do something wicked or sinful is at night under the cover of darkness. These people sit at home in darkness, plan what they're going to do evil, and then when the morning comes and the light comes and everybody can see what they're going to do, they do it. Why? It's in the power of their hands. Who's going to stop them? So we start to get the indication that these people are, are they, don't, they're not, they don't just have the ability to sin. We all have the ability to sin. But they may have some, some kind of power in society that, that, that gives them the ability to sin in broad daylight. Nobody can stop them. So this is the first group of people that Micah is going to, is going to put in the dock and say, you guys are guilty. They don't do it simply because it's sins of opportunity, um, things they don't plan. They've planned to do it. They do it because they're able to do it, not because there's really any good, good reason for it, not that there's ever a good reason to disobey, right? But we say maybe there's a difference between stealing to feed your family and stealing just because you can, right? If any of you have ever read Augustine's Confessions, uh, Augustine tells a story about when he was a young man, he and some of his friends went and stole pears from a neighbor's pear tree. And when he reflects on why he did it, he said, we weren't hungry. We didn't want the pears. We just wanted the thrill of being able to steal something. We just liked the idea that we could do something wicked. Right? That's what these people are doing. So then in verse 2, <coughs> Micah outlines exactly what it is that these people are doing that is, that is evil, or that can be described as iniquity. It says they... They covet fields, and they seize them, and houses, and so we're supposed to read, I think, they covet houses, and they take them away. Again, you see kind of the parallelism, fields, houses. So these, these people uh, have, have some kind of power to be able to take things from others. But I think one of the most important things we, hear, we see here is they don't just take it, but it starts with this, they covet. They covet something that belongs to somebody else, and then they take it. Right? They covet, and then they steal it. Um, both of these things, incidentally, are forbidden in the Ten Commandments, which is a summary of God's law. So again, What's, what God is bringing judgment on them for is not something arbitrary. It's something that he has said very specifically, don't do this. What's interesting is that in chapter 1, that the, the sin that is mentioned is idolatry. When we think about them breaking the commandment, you know, you shall have no other gods before me. And yet here, the sin that's very specifically drawn out is this idea, this uh, covetousness, which then results in, in theft. 
And while there certainly is idolatrous worship going on, I think it's interesting that the point that Micah makes is that I think covetousness and this injustice that's going on is actually an expression of idolatry. It may not be the way that we think about it, right? But actually, if you go to the New Testament, to, uh, to Colossians, Colossians 3, 5, and Ephesians 5, 5. Colossians 3, 5, Paul says, Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In Ephesians 5, 5, Paul says, You may be sure that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So it's interesting that this, that, that the 10th commandment, to break the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, is actually also to break the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. This is a very serious issue, right? Covetousness makes something other than God the ultimate object of desire and worship. So much so that you're willing to break the other commandments in order to get it. What I think is happening here is that you have probably wealthy people or powerful people in society who are taking advantage of poorer people in society, saying, I want that, I'm going to go grab it. You actually see an example of this uh, happen in 1 Kings uh, 21. This is actually in the, in the north, but this is a very similar example to, I think, what's going on. Ahab sees uh, Naboth's field, right, or vineyard. And he says, I want that. I'm going to buy it from Naboth. Naboth says, no, nah, it's my inheritance. I'm not going to sell it to you. And then Jezebel, Ahab's wonderful wife, um, says, oh, don't worry. We'll take care of that. And so they, they kill uh, they, they find a way to accuse Naboth of breaking the law, and they have him stoned, and they say, oh, look at this beautiful vineyard. We should probably take this for the king, right? They, they, it was in their power to do it. They had the ability to do it and actually make it look legal. So you can go read that for, for fun. So these, these people are, are coming up with new ways to break God's law by coveting things that belong to other people and, and stealing them, and and maybe all the while, on the outside, worshiping the God of Israel. Saying, oh yes, we love, yeah, we're not like those pagans in the north who are worshiping false gods. Now they very well may, may have been, but they may have been able to keep an air of, oh, we're following God, we're following God, and yet their hearts are far from him. So verses 3 to 5 then, God brings his verdict. He right, starts with therefore. So therefore, in light of all of this, what you're doing, therefore, thus says the Lord. Behold, I am planning against this family, which probably just means Israel, uh, the, the people, a calamity, a disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. You will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. What's interesting, I think, is that this word planning in Hebrew is the same word as this word. It's a scheme. It says you're going to scheme iniquity, right? You're going to scheme out ways to do evil. Listen to this. I'm scheming ways 
to bring judgment on you. Right? God hasn't been caught off guard by this. He's been taking note of the wickedness, and he's, he's planning his righteous judgment. He says, you cannot uh, remove this calamity from your necks, and you won't be able to escape from it. It may actually be a, a reference to the exile, uh, as the people are carted off like oxen with yokes and chains around their necks. He says, you will not walk haughtily, right? You're not going to be arrogant. When you're walking away into exile, you're not going to be walking around thinking how great you are. It's going to be an evil time. Evil probably here does not have a moral connotation. It probably means something more like distress or misery or adversity. Um, it's the same words in Hebrew. And actually very, very closely related to this word. I think there's like one letter difference. And then verse 4, this is where there's a couple places here in, in this passage where we have kind of a tough time figuring out who's talking and exactly what's going on. So we'll read this and I'll, I'll give you my, my take, but it, it's, it's not quite as easy as, as, uh, as what, even what I say. It says, on that day they will take up a, uh, against you a taunt and utter a bitter lamentation and say, we are completely destroyed. He exchanges the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To the apostate, he apportions our fields. So you gotta ask, well, it says on that day, they. Well, who's they? It doesn't say. So this is kind of one of those parts of, of prophecy where we just kind of flow into a new thought and he doesn't really give us any warning or, or uh, indication of who exactly he's talking about. But in verse 3, he's talking to the people, right? This is, I'm planning a calamity against you, and you won't be able to escape this. And so they is probably not the people. I would take this to be the, the people who are going to conquer them, right? That day, they, the people who conquer you, are going to take up again. They're going to taunt you. They're going to mock you. And they're going to utter a, a bitter lamentation and say, and then you have these, these quotes. And so this is, the, this is sort of the quote that these people are going to say, but now it changes to, second, uh, for, to first person. So we are completely destroyed. Well, wait, so is that the people of Judah who are talking? But if it's, if it's the people who conquered them, does that make sense? So, so I think what's happening here is that part of the mock, part of the taunt, is that the, the conquerors, imagine the, the, the people of Judah being like walking off into exile as the foreign soldiers look at them and make fun of them and, and say, look at, those, look at those Judeans. Oh, we are completely destroyed. They're exchanging the portrait. Like they're, he's mocking them. So this is them kind of being sarcastically uh, uh, speaking for the conquered people. Saying God is removing the land from them, or more accurately, removing them from the land, and giving our fields to the apostate, right? giving them to these wicked people who don't follow God. Right? This is, shows this tragic irony of this situation. The wicked, these wicked landowners or wicked powerful people that lived in, in, in Judah had planned on how to take land from others, and so now God has planned to take the land from them. 
And then the end of this section, I couldn't fit it all on one slide. You get this really, this really fun, not confusing at all verse. Therefore, you will have no one stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Anyone want to take a crack at that? It's an easy one, right? So again, this returns to, to, to Micah or, or God speaking through, through Micah with the therefore, pointing back to what he's just been saying about the judgment. And what I think is happening here, so the assembly of the Lord is, is like the congregation of God's people. And it looks forward because he's saying you will, uh, you will have no one to, to do this. So this is looking into the future. And it seems like it's looking into the future past the exile to when people return to the land and when the, the land is reapportioned to the Jews who are returning. And yet, the judgment that's being announced on these people then is that you're not going to have anyone stretching a measuring line for you by lot. Now, that is kind of weird and confusing, but it probably looks back to Joshua when the land was apportioned the first time by lot. And so basically, this is as, they are, as they're redistributing this land, he's like, there's, there's going to be nobody in the assembly for you to do this, which is effectively not only to say you're not going to get any land, it's going to say none of you are going to be there. You're not going to be a part of the Lord's people. This is very serious judgment on them. Now, Micah shows up in your neighborhood, says, this is what you're doing, and uh, God's going to bring judgment on you, and uh, even when the people come back, you're not going to be there. You're not even going to be a part of his people. You are probably not going to be uh, reacting in a real positive way to Micah. Right now, we can convince ourselves. Oh no, I would listen to the Lord. I I would know it's a prophet of God. Right, sure, because we always listen to what the Bible says. Right, we never disobey. Right. So, so the people of of Judah hear what Micah is saying. They're not huge fans. So verses six to eleven, they're going to attempt to defend themselves. It's a very feeble defense. So this is where we get some of the confusing who's talking issues. Verses 6 and 7. Do not speak out so they speak out. But if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. Is it being said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good? to the one walking uprightly. So what's confusing about this is we don't necessarily have any clear indication of who it is that's talking, who's they, right? Don't speak out, they speak out, well, who's that? But if they do not speak out, well, who's this they? Is it the same they as that they? And then who's talking in verse 7? Is it one person? Is it two people? Is it three people? Who's saying what? This is where it gets very confusing. So I made this fun sheet for you which if you didn't pick up is, is over there. Um, I, I want to look at this briefly, but I don't want you to get obsessed with this because no matter which, thing, which one you, you go with, the meaning of the verses really doesn't change. You still get the idea that's being, being conveyed, but it's, it's interesting. So 
one of the things that makes it, that makes it hard is that there are, there are different ways that this is viewed even in translations, right? And so I have four different translations on there and they each break it down a different way. So everybody really takes the beginning of it where, where it's don't, uh, don't speak out like this is that some kind of uh, somebody who's opposing Micah, right? Whether it's false prophets or, or just the people of Judah. Somebody is, is opposing him and saying, Micah, don't, don't talk like this. Don't, don't preach like this. Actually, the Hebrew word is drip. It says, don't drip like this, right? You're like a, you're like a dripping faucet, Micah. You're so annoying. Why are, you, why are you doing this? Interestingly, it's the same word. You know, don't, don't drip like this, so they drip. Right, so they speak. Uh, the NAS takes uh, these two lines as being something basically that Micah is saying back to them. If they do not speak concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. I think they take then this they to be God's true prophets. Other translations would take it that this is actually a continuation of what the opponents are saying. Would translate it, uh, do not, uh, one should not, this is the ESV, one should not preach of such, thi such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. And this is legitimate translations. And then is Micah then speaking uh, again here, the beginning of verse 7. Is it being said, kind of in response to what these false teachers are saying, these prophets are saying, is it being said, O house of Jacob? And then, again, quoting, here quoting, we take maybe as more words of these, these opponents, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his doings? It's two rhetorical questions that assume the answer, no. So if we, if we take it this way, if we, if we were to say, this is the, the false teachers, and this is the false teachers. And then these parts are, are Micah, and I think that's probably right, but even if, even if it's a little bit different, some of these other translations, the, the point is still, is still really the same. These, these opponents are saying, Micah, don't prophesy like that. That's, that's bad. This is, you see this happen a couple times in Israel's history, right? When... Um, when Ahab and Jehoshaphat are going to get ready to go to war, and Jehoshaphat's like, this is in First uh, Kings something. Um, you know, look it up. Uh, say, let's, Je Jehoshaphat says to Ahab, let's consult the Lord, which Ahab's like, oh, yeah, okay. Ahab doesn't really care that much about the God of Israel, um, but he needs Jehoshaphat to come with him. So he says, yeah, sure, let's do that. And uh, you get all these, uh, all these false prophets that come in, and it's like, oh, yeah, you guys are totally going to conquer these people. And then Jehoshaphat's like, yeah, no, but really, is there like a prophet from God here? And, and Ahab goes, well, there's Micaiah, interestingly, same, same name, right? There's Micaiah, but I don't like him because he only prophesies evil things about me. <laughs> right? So I tell him, don't, don't talk like that. Right? Same thing happens in Jeremiah 28 where you have this, this prophet who says, oh, don't worry, you're only going to be in exile for like two years, and then you're going to come back, and Jeremiah says, no, it's, it's going to be 70, and he's a false prophet, and then the chapter ends with that false prophet then died. 
So these guys don't want Micah to talk. They don't like what he's saying. And they try to be really religious about it. They say, is this the Spirit of the Lord? Is the Spirit of the Lord impatient? No, of course not. Are these his doings? Well, God wouldn't do this. And so they cloak their evil in this kind of religious language. And then God says in response to them, well, do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? Indication would be if, if my words are not bringing good to you, it may be because you're not walking uprightly. To put more force into that, in the next couple of verses, he reiterates these crimes that they are that they're committing. And he's going to hit on this idea of, of kind of thievery and injustice again. He doesn't explicitly mention covetousness, but, but this is standing in the background from earlier in, in the chapter. He says, Recently my people have arisen as an enemy. So he's saying, are you walking uprightly? No, in fact, recently you've, you've made yourself my enemy. It says, you strip the robe off the garment from unsuspecting passers-by. It just means you think about some traveler walking, and he's just walking along, and they come and they just rip his coat off. In the law, even if you took somebody's coat as collateral, you were supposed to give it back to them before the sun went down so they wouldn't freeze. Right? That was legal. And here they're just taking it from unsuspecting passers-by and from those who returned from war. It's like, so you're, you're abusing these travelers and Apparently war-weary soldiers who have fought a battle and now return home, and the last place they expect to be abused is in their hometown. He says, the, the women of my people you evict, each one from her pleasant house, and from her children you take my splendor forever. You look at these, these may represent four of the most vulnerable uh, groups in society. Just so that nobody sends me any emails, I don't mean to necessarily say that women are inherently one of the most vulnerable groups in society, so please don't send me any emails. What, what this probably is referring to is, is uh, uh, widows, right? these, these women who are being evicted from their homes, their husbands have died, and uh, these, these wicked people see an opportunity to, to force themselves in and take from these women, this inheritance. And then her children are also uh, being abused. So these would be uh, orphans, that is, people without fathers. So if the, these widows are being robbed of, of what is rightfully theirs, what was their husband's and is then theirs and should be passed on to their children, then the children are also being robbed. So this seems to be describing a, a pattern uh, of, of injustice in, uh, in the land that has its roots in this, this idolatrous covetousness in these, in these people. And you see this, you read some of the other prophets, this is the kind of stuff that is repeatedly condemned. 
The big principle, I think, to, uh, to take away is that the way that you treat other people reflects the worship of your heart. Right? The, the way that these, these wicked people who Micah is addressing are treating others is actually indicative of where their heart is with the Lord. Right? This is why you, you see Jesus talking about the two greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. They're, they're tied together. Right? It's like, oh, I, I, I love God, I just don't love people. I don't want to love people. I, oh yeah, I love God, but then I'm going to turn around. You see this in the parables that Jesus tells, right? The person is so thankful the, the, um, when his debt is, is canceled. He's so thankful to the, to the king right, for canceling his debt. And then he goes and he's like, but you owe me you know, 10 bucks. And he's about ready to take him to court for it. And the king shows up and it doesn't go well for that guy, right? He's like, oh yeah, I, lo- I love the king, but I'm totally going to put this guy in jail until he pays me my 10 bucks. Right? The way that you treat others reflects your worship, reflects your relationship with God. If you're coveting what belongs to another, you're sinning first against God because you're not content with what he's given you, trusting that he's going to provide all that you need, and if you don't have it, it's probably because you don't need it because otherwise he would give it to you. But you're also sinning against others by desiring what is theirs and plotting to get it. Verses 10 and 11, verse 10, if verses 8 and 9, again, say this is, this is the crime that you're committing. You're not walking uprightly. This is why judgment is coming. And verse 10 says, and this is the judgment that is coming. It begins with this disgusted command, arise and go. Say, Just leave, get out of here. This is no place of rest referring probably to the land, the land of Judah. This is no place of rest, which is uh, quite something to say because in Deuteronomy 12.9, as the people are preparing to enter the land, God says, this is going to be your place of rest. He says, this is no place of rest for you. Why? Because of the uncleanness that brings destruction. The land with Jerusalem at its center and the temple at the center of Jerusalem and the Holy of Holies at the center of the temple was supposed to be uh, this, this place of holiness and purity, right? Israel was set apart for God. They were supposed to be God's people and that uh, the, the, the holiness and purity that was supposed to characterize them and set them apart from the rest of the nations was supposed to radiate outwards and lead the rest of the world to worship God. The very opposite happens, right? They're profaning the temple, the very place uh, uh, that is supposed to be the center uh, of of all of this uh, work that God is going to do among the nations in Jerusalem is now called the high place. It's the the place where pagans are worshiping. They're bringing through their sin, they're bringing this uncleanness on the land. It's ritually impure. God, God can't dwell there. Or maybe more accurately, God will dwell there, but he'll dwell there in judgment. Just like God says, if you 
if you're not clean, and I can't be in your, your midst because my holiness would consume you. So instead of being this place of rest and holiness and peace and purity, it's a place of uncleanness and wickedness. And thus it's brought on the destruction of God's judgment. It's being consumed by his holiness. This may seem harsh unless we really take seriously the holiness of God. Right? Oh, is it really that bad? I mean, they just stole some stuff. So you understand how holy God is and how wicked sin is. You don't understand how sin has to be burned up in God's holy judgment. But like today, and really every time, people are really not interested in hearing that, especially when it's talking about them. So in verse 11, Micah laments the people's response, right? So in verse 6, it started with the people are saying, don't talk like this. Then he comes back around to it in verse 11, and he says, if a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak to you concerning wine and liquor, he would be a spokesman to this people. You know, people are always willing to as we studied in 2 Timothy, right? To acquire teachers to suit their own desires. Micah's saying, I'm telling them the truth and they have, they have no interest in hearing me. But if somebody were to come and just and tell them, oh, don't worry, things are going to go great, they, they would throw him a party. They'd be like, this is our favorite guy. He always says the right things. We're going to keep him around. And then that section ends. Micah just lamenting the hard-heartedness of the people. And then there's this little section at the end, these two verses. Right? And then we turn the page over to chapter 3, and we go right back to talking about why God is bringing judgment on the people. But right here at the end of this first big section of Micah, chapters 1 and 2, you have this little glimmer of hope. The tone changes, right? I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. This, and we're going to get to verse 13 in a second. This describes in some way God restoring his people, right? They're, they're going to go into exile. There's this judgment, but then God's going to restore them. So this, the exile is not the end. There's a, there's a restoration, there's a, there's a salvation, there's a deliverance on the other side. Now, notice who's doing it. I will surely assemble you. I will surely gather you. I will put them together like sheep in the fold. Right? This is God saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this because I am faithful to my covenant, even though you are not. I am going to do this. I'm going to gather the, the remnant of Israel. Right, we could spend a lot of time talking about this, this idea of the remnant and how it, how it works through uh, the Old Testament. We just talked about it a little bit a couple weeks ago, I think, in, in, uh, in our sermon series on Genesis, 
where Tom talked about how, how Joseph, in talking to his brothers, said, God, God brought us here to preserve a remnant for his people. God is always keeping his people safe. You see Paul talking about this in, in the book of Romans. He says, the word of God has not failed. God is, has, just like in the days of Elijah, he's kept a, a remnant. And he says, by grace, not by works. They're not the remnant because they're good people. They're the remnant. They're the, the faithful people of God because God keeps them faithful. He says, I'm going to, to gather them like sheep. And he gathered them like a flock. So he's picturing himself as a shepherd. And then verse 13. It says, the breaker goes up before them. They break out and pass through the gate and go out by it. So their king goes on before them and the Lord at their head. So God is, is going to, to save a remnant and there's going to be a king who is their rescuer. Now, he doesn't expand on this here. We're kind of left waiting to know more. He's going to expand on it more in the coming chapters. Both of these ideas, this idea of what's this restoration going to look like? When is that going to take place? Uh, who, is, who is this king? This king who's also called the breaker. You could almost put a capital B there. The one who, who, who breaks out of this slavery and exile and leads them. Right? We, we do learn one thing about him, though. The breaker is, is the king, and he's also the Lord. He's the Lord himself. Right? It's God who's leading him. So whoever this person is, this figure is, is going to lead the people out of exile like a shepherd, the king who goes before them, it's, it's the Lord himself. You may be able to, to argue that this is fulfilled, at least in a partial way, at the end of the exile in Babylon. So after the 70 years that the people are in exile in Babylon, then a bunch of them come back. Not all of them come back, but a bunch of them come back. And so you can say, well, does that mean the Lord's assembling his people, the remnant of Israel? Well, maybe, maybe in a sense. But there's no king. And particularly as we look into uh, later parts of the book, and we see this expanded on, we see that the identity and the nature of this king, right, the breaker, the conditions that uh, he's going to appear in and what he's going to do are outlined in chapters 4 and 5. And we learn that the king who's going to shepherd Israel we're gonna, is going to come forth like David from this little town in Judah called Bethlehem. And that the, the conditions after the exile, even though the people are gathered together, the people still actually viewed themselves as being in exile because they lived in the land, but they were slaves. And so there's, from, from where they're at, there's something still future to rescue them. So just two verses, just this slight glimmer of hope. There's this figure, the, the breaker, the king is going to come. The Lord is going himself is going to come and gather us and rescue us. But he's also going to judge sin. So next week, we're going to get to chapter 3, 
which is more uh, fun talk about why God is, is going to judge his unfaithful people. And then chapters 4 and 5 deal mostly with God's, God's future plan to save his people. Uh, so we're, we'll, we'll talk about that more in, in the coming.